is for us to look around chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 22. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen. The Apostle Peter was bold. He was bold. Some might say that he was bold in all the wrong ways. When Jesus was foretelling his death on the cross, Peter was quick to say that Jesus would never be killed. But then the same Peter abandoned Jesus at the hour of his death. Peter was right when Jesus asked him, who do you think that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of, the God, the Son of God. But most of the time, the Gospels portray Peter as raising his hand in class and being the one who always gives the wrong answers. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe this person is kind and affable, eager and willing, with a real can-do attitude, Maybe they can be a little bit dense sometimes, and they have to be reined in. But overall, there's someone you would like to have on your team. Sometimes the people like this in our lives, they really impress us. Like Peter in Acts chapter 2, when he rises to the occasion to defend those who are speaking in tongues, and he preaches one of the greatest sermons that have ever been preached in the history of the church. But then the same person might say or do something that leaves us wondering if this person has made any progress at all. Like Peter in Galatia, when he aligns with the Judaizers and has to be confronted by Paul to his face for his hypocrisy. And it's not just the Peters in our lives that struggle to learn their lessons. In a very real sense, we are all like Peter. In various ways and at various times, we just have a hard time connecting the dots. We have a hard time putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Sometimes things immediately snap into focus for us. But other times, we have to be told over and over and over and over again. We have to be told the same truth 10,000 times before we finally grasp it. I wonder if Peter 
ever looked back on the events from today's text in that way as he processed the vision that he received on the house of Simon the Tanner. See, Peter stayed with a Gentile man named Simon. And as he was relaxing on the roof of Simon's house one day, he had a vision. And the point of that vision was basically to tell Peter that he no longer had to abide by Jewish dietary laws. The voice came down from heaven saying, Do not call common what God has made clean. And as amazing as it is, and as fantastic as it is for Peter to receive a vision of divine revelation, it's kind of sad that Peter needed to receive a vision to help him understand this point at all. You see, years before the voice came down from heaven and told Peter that all foods were clean for him to eat, he heard the very same thing from his master in the text that we read today. I have discipled quite a few people in my life. If you have parents, you probably, if you're parents, you've probably been through the same phenomenon. But how often is it that we teach somebody something one, two, three times and they don't get it? And then they come back to us months, perhaps even years later, and say, hey, guess what I just learned? And then they cite a source that's not you. And they tell you what they learned that, in fact, you probably taught them ten years prior to that. Well, that's what Peter is going through today. Verses 18 and 19 read, And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And then Mark offers his commentary on what is happening here. He says, Thus he declared all foods clean. It's not like Jesus didn't go the extra mile to make this point clear for his disciples. As a matter of fact, Jesus begins his lesson on purity and food by teaching an entire crowd of people. Jesus is having a dispute with the religious leaders, and after that, he, he calls the crowd to himself. And he says, let me teach you guys something. And then, per usual, once the crowd dissipates and Jesus and the disciples go into a home, the disciples come up to Jesus and they say, hey Jesus, we don't really understand what you said. And Jesus takes the time to explain to them what he was talking about. In verse 17 we read, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Now interestingly, Jesus seems surprised, or excuse me, Jesus doesn't seem surprised, no, he does seem surprised that the disciples couldn't make sense of his teaching on the matter. In verse 18 he says, Then are you also without understanding? It seems like Jesus is saying this. I get it that the religious leaders don't understand what I'm talking about. And it makes sense that the crowd doesn't understand what I'm talking about. But you guys, you should understand. You're my disciples. You're part of my inner circle. You've been traveling with me. I've been giving you all the gems. I've been giving you all the secrets of the kingdom. How is it that you all don't understand in the same way that the crowds and the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't understand? But rather than simply mocking the disciples for their lack of understanding, rather than simply dressing them down for their ignorance, he once again patiently explains the meaning of his parable to them. He says, don't you understand that stuff from the outside does not make you unclean on the inside? Jesus says, you are already unclean on the inside. Your hearts are filthy. 
And from your filthy hearts come all kinds of evil. And then Jesus gives us a list of the evil. From your filthy hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. It can be confusing for us modern-minded people to think about spiritual uncleanliness. In the age of germ theory, it doesn't make sense to us. When we think about uncleanliness, we think about how many germs or bacteria may be living on any square inch of our body at any point in time. Ironically, 200 years ago, this was exactly the opposite. When Louis Pasteur started developing his germ theories and Joseph Lister started advocating for antisepsis in the operating room, they were lambasted, they were mocked. All the people at that time had a good religious upbringing and education, even if they weren't themselves regenerate and Christian, they at least understood the concept of spiritual impurity. But when it came to germs, the understanding of having microbes, millions and billions of microbes walking around, living on your skin that could cause infection, it didn't make any sense to them. They couldn't understand physical impurity, physical uncleanliness, but they understood spiritual uncleanliness. But to us, in 2017, it's hard for us to think about being spiritually unclean because we're so used to thinking about being physically unclean. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew about our filth problem. He said the problem that we had was not a physical problem, but a spiritual one. It's not a problem of physical uncleanliness, but spiritually uncleanliness, spiritual uncleanliness. It's not merely ceremonially unclean, but unclean in God's sight because of your sin. And this way of thinking about cleanliness, our cleanliness or lack thereof, is of a spiritual nature. So therefore, the consequences are also of a spiritual nature. In the same way that a person who is infected with MRSA or tuberculosis may be quarantined from other people for the safety of the general public, a person who is spiritually unclean must be quarantined from the presence of a holy and righteous God. For the Jews in particular, what this meant to be unclean would be that you were not able to participate in the ceremony. You were not able to enter into the temple and participate in the acts of worship that were carried, there, there, that were carried out therein. This is not due to the fact, brothers and sisters, that God was afraid of touching an unclean person and becoming unclean himself. We've already seen in the book of Mark that whenever God comes into contact with an unclean person, he does not become unclean. The unclean person becomes clean. When Jesus came into contact with a leper, he was not in the slightest bit concerned about contracting leprosy. When the leper touched Jesus, the leper became clean. With God, holiness overpowers the effects of the fall every single time the two come into contact. Rather, God doesn't allow spiritually unclean people to enter into his presence, that is, he declares them ceremonially unclean, in order to teach them something about himself, in order to teach them something about his character, namely that he's holy. And to be holy means that there is no mixture of dirt. There is no mixture of sin. There's no mixture of impurity. This is the sort of thing that we read about in 1 John 1.5 when he says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So if you follow God, and if you want to serve him, 
if you want to come into his presence, you might want to ask yourself the question, how can I remain clean? And that's the question that the Jews were asking in Jesus' day. But Jesus says that such a question shows that you really don't understand the issue at hand. You really aren't even asking the right question. A better question might be, how do I get clean? Not how can I stay clean, but how can I get clean? Unfortunately, the religious leaders were not asking the right questions. And because they weren't asking the right questions, they could not give the right answers. Jewish thought at the time of Jesus believed that all uncleanliness had a mother source. So, for example, if your nana died in the middle of the night in her bed, that bed would therefore be unclean because it was touched by a dead body. And if anybody were to touch that bed, they themselves would then become unclean. The bed would be the source of uncleanliness, of impurity. So, Jesus says, you've got it backwards. You've got it backwards. There's, there's no source of impurity out there that if you touch, it's going to make you unclean. Rather, Jesus says, it's not the object from the outside that makes you unclean. It's the object that's already inside of you that has made you unclean. It's your heart that defiles you. Jesus is saying, your heart is the mother source of impurity. You don't have to worry about touching that copper pot or that bed or that item in the market or that meat. The main source of impurity that you have to worry about is something that you carry around in your innermost being 24 hours a day, seven days a week for all of your life. It's not the physical world that makes you spiritually unclean. It's the spiritual reality of your heart that defiles the rest of you. Look at the list of things that Jesus says come out of our hearts in verses 21 and 22. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. I wonder if you notice when you read this that it's not just things that you do, but also things that you think. In this list, you have our evil thoughts and desires as well as the evil actions that come out of our evil thoughts and desires. And the reason why he lists both of those things in the same list is because both of them come from the same source of uncleanliness, your heart. A polluted heart cannot produce clean water. A heart that is full of sin cannot produce righteous thoughts and righteous deeds and righteous actions. Now, it's true, sometimes, sometimes our thoughts don't materialize into actions. But that doesn't mean that they're not sinful. And the reason why we think sinful things and do sinful things is because the thing that produces our thoughts, which lead to our actions, is itself sinful. So how do you think of yourself? Maybe you're a Christian now, but prior to coming to Christ, prior to having a solid understanding of the gospel, how did you think of yourself? Did you think of yourself as basically a good person? Most people do. Most people think they're walking around with a basically clean heart. It might have a little dirt on it, but it's not polluted. 
most of us walking around, walk around assuming that we're okay with God because we're basically good people. We think that God is going to let us into heaven because, yeah, we may have bad thoughts, but they're not as bad as that guy's over there. And yes, if we do do bad things, our evil deeds aren't as bad as that guy's over there. He'd definitely go to hell, but I wouldn't. Well, brothers, not only is that not true biblically, but I think you know in your own hearts that that is not true. I think your conscience convicts you of the very depths of your sins, although you try to ignore your conscience, and you try to sear your conscience so that you can't feel the conviction that God has built into your conscience over those sins. One theologian used to talk about carrying a tape recorder around on his neck. He said, just imagine that you carry a tape recorder around on your neck that records everything you ever say, in public, in private with your wife, in private with your kids. Would you be ashamed to have that tape recorder played in public? at the end of a year? If the answer to that is yes, then you know, you know that your mouth is letting the overflow of your evil heart come out. You know intrinsically that you're guilty of sin, even if you don't realize it, even if you deny it. The truth of the matter is that unless Christ saves us, all of us have unclean hearts. Some of our unclean hearts are dirtier than others, it's true. And some of them produce more pollution in our lives in more obvious ways than others. Some people's polluted hearts leads them to go on drug-fueled benders, robbing banks, killing people, all sorts of things, like what we saw in Texas. Some people's unclean hearts leads them to pursue a career where they make $100,000 a year, and they have a very nice house, and they have a very nice wife, and they have two golden retriever dogs, and they drive a very nice luxury sedan, and they go to church every single Sunday and Bible study every single Wednesday. The story of the prodigal son highlights this so well. In the story of the prodigal son, we read about the younger brother whose sinful heart led him to rebel against his father by demanding to have all of his inheritance, which was basically just like telling his father, I don't care if you live or die. And then he took that inheritance and he ran with it and he went and invested it in all the things of the world, like prostitutes and if drugs would have been around drugs and all sorts of evil things. And then he found himself at the very bottom of the barrel living with pigs and filth before he finally repented and came home. His filthy heart led him to rebel against God in a particularly obvious way. But the older brother, who stuck around and who did everything that the father wanted, who was totally obedient to the commands of his father, at least externally, well, when his younger brother came home, he was very angry about it. He was upset that the father was giving him grace and receiving him back into the family. He was bitter because he thought he deserved something from the Father because of his righteousness and his obedience. And then he refused to go in and celebrate the homecoming of his prodigal brother. And so his proud heart led him to act in self-righteousness. Sometimes our polluted hearts show themselves in one very obvious way. Sometimes our polluted hearts allow us to exist within a church and nobody even knows it. But the truth is, is that all of our hearts are naturally filthy in God's sight, even if your neighbors don't know it. And these unclean hearts produce unclean thoughts and deeds. 
but they also make us unclean in God's sight. Which means that we can never enter into His presence unless we remove the source of that uncleanliness. If your nana died on the bed, you would have to go and wash the sheets, and then after you wash the sheets in the bed, you would have to go wash yourself. And after the source of uncleanliness was clean, and you were clean, you could enter back into God's presence. And so if you were a Jew, your uncleanliness problem, your filth problem, was fairly easy to solve, even in a land that didn't have a lot of water. But what do we do if the problem is our heart? How do we remove our hearts? That's bad news. The Bible asks this question. How can the jaguar change its spots? How can a blind man make himself see? How can a man with filthy hands change his soiled garments and put on fine white linen? How can a dead man bring himself back to life? And he can't. She can't. You can't. I can't. We cannot do these things. You cannot remove your own spots. You can't even begin to clean yourself because when you are unclean in God's sight, you don't even know the extent of your uncleanliness unless he tells you about it. You cannot give yourself CPR to bring yourself back to life. What this means ultimately is that there's no way for us to find a way into God's presence. It means that unless someone who is clean comes and cleans us, we will never be clean. Unless someone who is alive comes and does chest compressions on us, we will never be brought back to life. Unless the light comes, we can never escape the darkness of our sins. And friends, that is very bad news. What is particularly hard to grasp about today's text is that it feels like Jesus leaves us hanging on a note of bad news. Like a young preacher who just learns about the doctrine of sin and gets up in the pulpit and rants and raves about the fullness of the depths of the depravity of the congregation and then says, let's pray without offering the hope of the gospel. Like the social activist who constantly shines the light on the problems of the world, but who never offers the hope and solution that is Jesus Christ to the world, is what it feels like as Jesus ends his lesson today. What he tells the crowd is that they are hopelessly unclean. That they are carrying around the source of defilement in their person. And then he just drops the mic right there. He doesn't tell them how they can get rid of it. He doesn't tell them what to do about it. Later in his ministry, he does. And then later on after that, the apostles that he discipled, they talk about that sort of thing. Your Bible is full of how we can be made clean in God's sight. And by God's grace, we live on the other side of the cross. We have access to the gospel. We have access to what his disciples thought about this sin problem, and they have told us in the Word. We aren't left to ourselves to try to figure out how we can get ourselves clean. We can just open God's Word and see the fullness of His response to this problem. One verse that we read in here often for our assurance of pardon, 1 John 1, 9, it tells us, it says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us 
of all unrighteousness. That's one of those verses that you hear all the time, right? And you maybe have gone nose blind to it. You don't, you don't really appreciate what John is saying here. He says you will be cleansed. You are dirty and you need to be cleaned. One of the reasons that I love the Bible is because of how coherent it is. There's no way that this 40-some-odd authors in 66 books over centuries and centuries and centuries could have gotten together and plotted the coherency that you see in the Bible. So you have 1 John using this cleansing language at the very end of our New Testaments. But then we also have in Leviticus, on the Day of Atonement, where God's people would come to be sanctified for the year and forgiven of their sins. It says this, For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. And you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. But that cleansing on that day of atonement for the life of the Jews, it wasn't permanent. It was sufficient, but it was not permanent. And because of Israel's sins, the need to be clean was perpetual. In the Psalms, we read of the perpetual requests of God's people to be made clean. Psalm 51.2 says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Psalm 51.7 says, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. One of the things that these psalms show us is that this idea of cleanliness that the religious leaders had as they confronted Jesus and his disciples, it was not some Old Testament God-given understanding of uncleanliness. It's not like there was a God of the Old Testament who thought about cleanliness one way, and then Jesus came and abrogated that Old Testament understanding and gave us a New Testament understanding of uncleanliness. The reality is, is this understanding of having an unclean heart that makes us unclean, it's as old as sin itself. God has been telling us that the source of our problem is our heart since the very beginning, since the days of Noah, when God said that the thoughts and intentions of their hearts were only and always evil. What we see here as the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees teach about cleanliness and filth, is that they have fundamentally distorted and misunderstood and misunderplied, misapplied what God has been saying about cleanliness since the very beginning. Centuries before Jesus says what he says in the text today, Psalm 51.10 has a psalmist crying out and saying, Clean my heart. He knew. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who did not understand. Ezekiel 36.25 gives us this New Testament promise, this new covenant promise that says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. Ezekiel 22.15, I will consume your uncleanliness from you. Ezekiel 36, 29, Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. And this promise is fulfilled in the coming of Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, the perfectly clean one. 
He came to save us from the sins that defile us and make us impure in God's sight. Titus 2.14, speaking of what Jesus has done for us, says this, Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. So what's the solution to our impurity problem? Maybe we should ask another question. Who is the solution to our impurity problem? Christ gave himself for us, not just to remove the judgment of sin and the guilt that's rendered against us because of our sins, not just to pay the ransom price that we owe because of our sin, but also to purify us from the stain that sin has left us and to make us holy and clean as we enter into God's eternal sight. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God made him who knew no impurity to become unclean on our behalf that we might become the holiness of God in Christ Jesus. God punished him who never had an evil or sexually immoral thought or who committed theft or murder or adultery, who never practiced greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, or folly, so that we might receive the reward of his perfect obedience to God from the heart. Okay, so Jesus is the answer. But how does one take advantage of the cleanliness that is offered to us in Jesus Christ? The sanctification, the cleansing waters that are offered to us in Jesus Christ. How does one take advantage of that? As we open the pages of Scripture, we see some very clear language, but we also see some tension. The clear language is that we must repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ. The tension is, who's really the one in charge of that? Listen to 1 Peter 1.22. He says, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. You have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. I think a plain reading of this text makes it sound like Peter is saying that you are the one who cleanses your own soul. Now listen to Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. This can seem a little perplexing at first. So which one is it, God? Are we purifying ourselves through our obedience? Or is God purifying us in regeneration? And the answer to that is yes. In 1 Peter, the language that Peter uses is almost certainly referring to baptism. Baptism has become something that we don't think about much in the life of the church. We undervalue in the life of the church. But in the early church, particularly in the times of the New Testament, it was just unheard of, unthought of, to not consider the weightiness of baptism. A person claims to have been saved from their sins and made clean by Jesus Christ, and the first thing they're expected to do is to stand up and proclaim it to the world and to the church and to God by going under the water and symbolizing 
their death, burial, and resurrection and the cleansing of their sins. In the New Testament, baptism language and regeneration language are used so closely together on purpose. It's because baptism is supposed to symbolize regeneration. Some of our Church of Christ friends and Catholic friends at this point in history have really confused things. Because your New Testament uses baptism language and regeneration language so closely, they've assumed that baptism actually regenerates us. But later in 1 Peter chapter 3, we clearly see that, Paul, that Peter speaks of baptism as not being something that saves us, but something that demonstrates, that pictures the salvation that we already have in Jesus Christ. And that symbol is real. It is a real symbol. It represents a real reality. And that's why Peter can say, in obedience to the truth, that is, in obedience to the command to be baptized, you have been cleansed. You have gone under the cleansing waters of baptism. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the reasons why we take baptism so seriously in the life of this church. This is one of the reasons why we don't admit members to this church who have not been baptized. Even if they have well-intentioned, even if in good intentions they've been baptized, their parents baptized them as babies and they're still convinced of that, we don't receive them into membership because we think that baptism really communicates something. It's a way of communicating the truth of the gospel, and God calls on us to be obedient to that command. It's one of the reasons that we rejoiced to see Spencer and Amber Klimek go under the water because they were standing up and telling the world that they've been cleansed from their sins. Their old life is done and washed away. Carrie, brother. Carrie. Yeah. Carrie, brother, I love you, and I want to talk to you more about this after service, okay? We'll talk about it later, okay, man? Hey, uh, Michael, can you, can you lead Carrie outside, brother, so you guys can talk? It is serious, and uh, we should take what Carrie's saying seriously. Yeah. None of Jesus' commands are optional. And we clearly see that Jesus' commands are commands from God, even in today's text. Jesus is calling people to himself to teach them the truth about their impurity. He calls the crowd to himself in the same way that a man named Moses called the crowd to himself thousands of years before. Moses, as he's leading God's people, calls God's people to himself. And he tells them about cleanliness. And now in today's text, Jesus, the greater Moses, calls God's people to himself once again to tell them something about himself and cleanliness. When he did, when Moses called the people to himself, he told them there were certain foods that they couldn't eat, certain kinds of clothes that they couldn't wear. And the reason why God gave these commands through Moses to her people, his people were many. 
And we're not going to get into all that this morning. The reasons for these rules were many, but what's more important for us to understand is that they were never meant to be permanent. Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law was meant to be a guardian. It was meant to be a schoolmaster until Christ came. The law was only and always meant to be a shadow of something greater to come. And the prohibition against certain foods was not God's way of just trying to limit the foods people consume, but rather a way of God pointing to himself and to his holy character. But Jesus comes in today's text and he says, the greater Moses has come. You no longer need the shadow. You no longer need the the guardian, the schoolmaster. I am here and I'm telling you, all food is clean. Who but God could tell God's people the law of Moses was good for a time, but now that faith has arrived, you are free to eat as you please. Who but God could say that? Once again in the book of Mark, we see that Jesus is showing exactly who he is. By standing up and saying something greater than Moses, Jesus is standing up and showing himself to be God. The one who declares all food clean is the same one who gave us life to make us clean. So now, brothers and sisters, let us live in obedience to the God who has cleansed our souls. Let's not defile them again through sin, but living in full obedience and faith to the spotless Lamb, let us pursue holiness and pursue Christ with all of our strength. Let's pray. We are unclean, Father. And we need you to be the one who cleans us. And every single person in this room has been cleansed by your Son, Jesus Christ, if they have repented of their sins and placed their faith in him. We pray that you would help us all to be obedient to the reality of our souls. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Um, I think Grant is outside spending some time with Carrie. Uh, I'm just going to